Without Googling it first, what is a semiconductor? Can you describe what it looks like? Is it the size of a Jeep or invisible to the naked eye? Kidding, of course. I'm well aware of how intelligent the listeners of this podcast are. Some of you might even work in the semiconductor industry, so you know all about these shockingly small and startlingly powerful transistor-filled squares of silicon. And if you do, you're likely aware that competition over R&D for semiconductors is arguably one of the most globally important and intense areas today. It was with this in mind that the Senate recently passed the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, formerly called the Endless Frontier. The Chuck Schumer and Todd Young authored bill includes 52 billion U.S. dollars in federal investment for domestic semiconductor research, design, and manufacturing provisions in the Chips for America Act. That latter bill, introduced in June 2020, stands for Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors for America Act, a name which is fairly self-explanatory. On today's episode of The Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit, we're going to put the microscope over this tiny chip, which has become the world's greatest battleground for global R&D leadership. And to lead us through it, I'm going to pass things over to Manager of R&D Tax Credit at Cross Border Solutions, Lydia Clowney. Take it away, Lydia. Hi, Matt. Thanks. And I'm thrilled to introduce our guest today. She's an economist at the Tax Foundation. Erica York is joining us. Erica, thanks for being here. Hi, Lydia. Thanks for having me on again. So let's start with a high-level view here. What are semiconductors and why are they such a hot-button issue for global politics? Semiconductors or computer chips are an essential component of electronic devices. You can find them in everything from toasters and LED lights to the car you drive, to the device you're streaming this podcast on, to more complicated things like healthcare, military, and communication systems, as well as critical infrastructure like 5G technology. Because they affect virtually every aspect of modern life and have important national security role, semiconductors and their supply chains have become a key geopolitical issue that lawmakers are focused on. They want to ensure the U.S. remains a global leader and that we have access to the chips we need. Some lawmakers have likened them to they are the oil of the 21st century. So that kind of gives you an idea of the geopolitics involved. Semiconductors are also a key industry for research and development expenses, capital expenditures, and investment in the United States. For example, building a new foundry where chips are manufactured costs anywhere from $7 billion to $20 billion dollars. And much of that can become obsolete within five years just due to the rapid pace of innovation within the industry. Another kind of interesting tidbit about semiconductors and the importance of R&D, CapEx and R&D as a share of industry sales are significantly higher within the semiconductor manufacturing industry than they are for manufacturing overall. So it indicates just how expensive it is to maintain a competitive edge and how crucial R&D is for this industry. Sounds like there are some real barriers to entry there. So there must be some inertia in terms of trying to influence the semiconductor production. Is that accurate? Yeah. Traditionally, what the U.S. has done is support for R&D. Other countries have have taken a more hands-on approach to supporting the industry, either by direct subsidies or even becoming involved in, in the production processes but within the United States, it's it's typically been on the R&D side. So semiconductors, these chips have been in the news a lot recently. I know I just recently read a pretty long form article in the Washington Post about 
how there's a global chip shortage. What's going on there? A confluence of factors has, has led us to this ongoing shortage. One of the biggest is the pandemic and how it changed consumer demand and how producers responded to it. So demand for electronics increased during the pandemic. More people were working from home. Kids were attending school virtually. And that meant, you know, we ordered a lot more iPads and computers and, and other things that have computer chips in them. And that itself led to the supply of semiconductors becoming bottlenecked. At the same time that demand for those types of electronic products increased, demand dropped for goods like vehicles. And automakers in particular cut production and they canceled orders for the parts that they used in production, including computer chips. But as demand picked back up more broadly for things, including vehicles, automakers found themselves at the back of the line to order chips that were already scarce. And that's being particularly felt in, in the auto industry because a, a new car can contain upwards of 1,000 computer chips. But if the manufacturer is missing just one chip to put in the vehicle, they can't get that vehicle out of production and onto the lot to be sold. So the shortage in computer chips is being especially felt in the auto industry, but it's being felt everywhere else too. You know, you, you may have noticed it, it was hard to come by a new PlayStation a, a few months ago. It's affecting industries across the spectrum because computer chips are so vital. And the reason we can't just, you know, fix this overnight is because producing a semiconductor is an intensely intricate process. You can't just, you know, turn on a few extra machines and increase how many you're producing. It can take up to three months to just produce a chip, a single chip, and then it still has to be sent to the manufacturer and put in whatever the final product is, and then that has to be shipped. And there's bottlenecks all along that supply chain right now. And a manufacturer that makes chips for, say, an iPhone can't necessarily switch overnight and start making chips for a car either. That in itself, that, that retooling and that process to change what kind of chips you're making is very intricate. And for some chips, you know, there, there are only like one or two fabs in the world that, that can make the advanced technology needed for certain products. So there are just delays along the supply chain, and those are not easy to work out and they're not quick to work out. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like there's R&D required just to, to produce these chips, but also that the chips are required in order for other companies to, to do their research and development as well. I, I know you were talking about the, the increased need for them. And I, I know looking at consumer goods, it seems like every product now can be smart. I imagine that all of these products are now requiring semiconductor chips where they maybe weren't before. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I kind of like to think of, you know, a typical morning routine your alarm goes off on your phone, then you flip on your LED lights, you walk to your kitchen and turn on your coffee pot, you open your fridge, you make breakfast on your stove, basically everything you touch except for, you know, your food and your coffee mug um, has a chip in it. And, and who knows, we might have, you know, like a smart coffee mug on the line soon too. So, so yeah, they're, they're really crucial to about every aspect of our lives from, you know, the things we do for entertainment, like gaming, to the things we do for work. Like we work on computers, we talk on phones, we're always connected and chips really facilitate, you know, the, the modern economy. It's so funny that you say the coffee mug example. I just today saw someone on Twitter touting a coffee mug that they could adjust the temperature of their leftover oh coffee. Oh my gosh. <laughs> It's happening. It is upon us. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
No two multinational companies everywhere. If you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. So let's talk a little bit about sort of the political aspect, especially since this is, you know, influencing global policy and, and certainly domestic policy. So let's talk about U.S. legislation that's been passed recently. And I guess I think we should start with the, the CHIPS Act. What is it? When was it introduced? What's the intention behind it? So originally, the CHIPS Act, the Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors for America Act, had a tax side and a spending side. On the spending side, it proposed authorizing more than $15 billion for semiconductor R&D, workforce training, and related activities. It authorized some matching funds for state and local semiconductor programs. On the tax side, it proposed an investment tax credit for U.S.-based semiconductor manufacturing equipment and facilities, but, but temporarily. What happened with that was the NDAA authorization that was passed in December and earlier this year, I, th I think there was a veto override with it, with the previous administration. It authorized some of the components of the CHIPS Act, like the grant programs, the partnership programs, and other sort of committee type initiatives. But that was just an authorization. That wasn't a funding. So it meant that the programs weren't and they still aren't implemented. And sort of a, a general rule of thumb, typically these authorization acts don't create new tax incentives. So the investment tax credit portion of the CHIPS Act was not included here. It was just those grant and partnership type programs. So they've been authorized, but not funded. And then that kind of moves us along the timeline to, to what the Senate has been up to. And it is bipartisan legislation. So when we had this kind of uh, stop and start, you know, we got a little bit partway there and then weren't able to kind of bring it home to completion. We ended up needing more legislation, right? It, it's not that things ended with the CHIPS Act and sort of where the where the chips fell uh, with that one, excuse <laughs> the pun. <laughs> but now there's other legislation as well. And I guess originally it was called the Endless Frontier Act. Then later it evolved into what was called the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. How does that go beyond the, the CHIPS Act? Yeah, so big picture, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, and, and like you mentioned originally, the, the Endless Frontier Act, gets way outside the scope of tax policy. It's legislation that fundamentally rethinks how the U.S. approaches science and technology policy. There have been lots of 
iterations of the bill and amendments to it, but it includes changes to the National Science Foundation and other grant programs and support for manufacturing, advanced manufacturing, and other technologies. So the Senate passed the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. It contains the Bipartisan Endless Frontier Act, as well as I think about 20 other bipartisan amendments, and they're all brought together under this one piece of legislation. It includes $52 billion of emergency funding that would implement the portions of the CHIPS Act that were included in the NDAA. So the, the semiconductor manufacturing design and research provisions that were authorized. While the Senate has passed that, it sort of remains to be seen what the final package will look like because the bills that are being considered by House lawmakers are taking a little bit different approach. They're less of a fundamental rethink of this science and technology policy, more along the lines of what we see year to year with these policies and funding. So they don't include that $52 billion of emergency funding to implement those CHIPS Act provisions. So we'll kind of have to see how the House and Senate decide to come together and what they would end up sending to the president if they pass something on this. And then another important note is that none of these packages that are being considered right now contain an investment tax credit. They do have those other grant programs and initiatives for the semiconductor industry, but not that additional investment tax credit. That has been introduced separately, though, the FABS Act or the Facilitating American Built Semiconductors, again, one of those self-explanatory names, proposes creating a permanent investment tax credit for semiconductor equipment and facilities, but that's not part of the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act or what the House is doing yet. And would that go above and beyond our current credit for increasing research activities? Yeah, that would be an additional credit. I'm not exactly sure how they would allow those to interact if it would allow double dipping or no double dipping. My guess would be on the no side, but since that's not you know, part of any of these packages yet, I, I don't know what a final proposal would look like. Fair enough. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. A lot of the media attention and coverage around these bills focuses on the international sphere and how some of this legislation will help us compete with, say, China. So why are we talking so much about China when we talk about, say, the Innovation and Competition Act? What's going on sort of globally that's prompting that conversation? Yeah, I've heard these referred to as the China bills. We kind of have to take a step back in time to, to get some better context on this. So in July 2018, 
the United States imposed 25% tariffs on semiconductors that were imported from China over the ensuing months through even last year. There's been a host of export controls and other tools used to combat China, as well as tariffs on a wide range of manufacturing imports. This was due to Section 301 investigation, which refers to kind of an arcane piece of trade law that found that China was engaging in unfair trade practices. So we responded with some trade policies that typically aren't used, but that's the route that the previous administration went. And so it sort of upended trade relations and the semiconductor industry. And a lot of this has to do with national security concerns over 5G technology, whether China's using their technology to, to spy on us, stealing our intellectual property, all these really tricky issues. And so China is perceived as a big threat because of that and because of all of the energy and money that they're fueling into their own industries. So that's kind of led us to where we are today. And that's a big impetus for trying to boost our domestic industry to stay on top, to keep our leadership edge in this advanced technology because it's so crucial for our infrastructure, for our military, and for our communication systems, as well as just our, our day-to-day lives. It kind of sounds like the government, at least you know, the U.S. government's position is that there needs to be a leveling of the playing field in order for us to keep our traditional edge in this sector. Yeah, that's the idea. As it stands right now, the U.S. is leader in terms of market share in the semiconductor industry. We have 47%. We're followed by Korea at 20%, Japan and the EU at 10%, Taiwan at 7%, and China is just at 5%. China also remains years behind the industry leader in the United States, in Korea, and in Taiwan sort of an interesting twist to this, I think. There was a report published in 2019 from the U.S. International Trade Commission, and the report attempted to answer two questions. The first one that they tried to answer was, in spite of 70 years of industrial planning efforts, why can't China make advanced semiconductors on par with the worldwide industry leaders? And the second question was, what are China's prospects for success with its current semiconductor industrial plans? I'll just read a little excerpt from their conclusion. They said that China's semiconductor industrial plans have lacked defined goals and clear implementation strategies and have been hampered by bureaucratic redundancies, relying heavily on state-owned enterprises, SOEs. These plans have been hindered by poor management, production inefficiencies, and a level of support from the state that resulted in profligate spending. In particular, the SOEs lack absorptive and innovative capacity, producing chips that fail to gain commercial traction. They concluded that China's efforts will not achieve their desired success. So even though you know the, the Section 301 investigation found unfair trading practices, and other national security concerns with what China is doing. I think it's important to take a step back and, you know, we see that China is not very successful. They're, they're years behind in terms of the technology they are producing. And even though they are funneling billions of dollars into the industry, it's not clear that those investments are successful, especially when compared to more of the leading edge technology that we see in, in Korea, Taiwan, and becoming more so in the United States. 
it almost just brings us right back to the beginning of talking about how it's so tough to get off the ground with these initiatives in the first place and that the development of, say, a new plant, even if you know what you're doing, is going to take lots of money, lots of time, and, and maybe even a little bit of luck. That's right. It's not just a matter of pouring money into things. There's you know, technological know-how. There's human capital that's required that you can't just pull out of thin air with money. I know that one of the reasons why this has been a real issue lately is due to the pandemic and disruptions in supply chains. Even uh, we could talk about, you know, global shipping and the issue with the ever given and, you know, getting stuck in the canal. Yeah. (laughs) Do you expect more of these disruptions to continue or do you think that we could expect maybe more stability within the global market? Yeah, that's like one of the million dollar questions right now. You know, we've heard from some industry leaders that they expect the supply chain issues to maybe clear out a little bit, maybe like at the end of this year or early next year. But then there's also the issue in particular, like you mentioned, with just the shipping constraints with the Delta variant of COVID coming back on and not every country, you know, being able to get their citizens vaccinated. We could see that is posing a threat to helping these supply chain issues. If we get even more port congestion, even more delays in shipping, that contributes to this problem. The COVID shock was really a a once in a lifetime shock, but it's still reverberating, both because of the increase in demand and the changes in demand for consumer products, the choices that different manufacturers made in response, you know, early on in the pandemic, and then how that contributed to bottlenecks that are still trying to be worked through. I do think that with just some time that will ease, but there continue to be threats to that as it relates to the pandemic. No, that makes a lot of sense. And all the kind of uncertainties that you mentioned make it more clear why the U.S. is trying to focus inward and shore up manufacturing here through these initiatives so that there's, you know, a backstop in case more disruption does happen. So I guess my question is, what do you think comes next? Do you think that this increased investment is going to go through and we'll see some real changes, some impact on R&D spending here in the U.S.? I, I do anticipate we will see increased funding from the government. I would, though, just want to, like, issue out a caution <laughs> that we shouldn't make long-term policy changes with the mindset of, like, March or April 2020. Things have changed a lot since then. We've seen just how resilient American manufacturers are. And so I think we should avoid, you know, trying to emulate the policies that that we see in China and other nations that engage in industrial planning, because we know that those efforts aren't always successful, even within the United States. We don't have a stellar track record of industrial planning. Oftentimes, you know, the government locks in wrong policy or makes it even harder for newcomers to, to enter the market when you have policies that benefit the incumbent firms. So I think we just need to be cautious about things that look like industrial policy or that look like protectionism. And rather than sort of refashion that industrial policy, continue to explore policies that complement the things that that we already do well with flexibility and free markets and trade and resiliency, which has historically led us to be successful. You know, I've talked on the podcast before about broad improvements to tax policy 
like allowing full expensing for machinery and equipment, continuing full expensing for research and development, rather than making the switch to five-year amortization, which is you know scheduled to happen after the end of this year. And then also looking at ways to improve the tax treatment of investments and structures, which as we talked about earlier, like hugely expensive for semiconductor manufacturing. So looking at those broad improvements to tax policy that wouldn't just be available for one narrow industry, but would be broadly available to all forms of businesses and all forms of manufacturing, I think better enable us to increase investment domestically than these really narrow tax and spending programs that have in the past not panned out so successfully. So there's a real need to be strategic rather than reactive. And I love that you mentioned that five-year amortization for R&D expenses. That's kind of a pet issue here with us as well. So we are definitely crossing our fingers that that does get resolved before the next year. Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed our discussion and brought a lot of really interesting information to the table. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. We want to thank Erica and Lydia for joining us again on this informative discussion. If you liked this podcast, you're going to love the other shows in our tax suite. That's the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing and the Fiona Show Tax Provision. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get podcasts. That's the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit, and we'll keep you up to date on the latest in this beneficial credit every week. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our audio producer. Stephen Markow is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll catch you next week.